Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 10th episode of 2023. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, the platinum sponsor of Fiber for Breakfast, and our gold sponsors, Nokia and Vetro. You know, today I'm here in Chile, San Diego at the OFC conference. You know, yesterday, Wendell Weeks, uh, the CEO of Corning, gave an amazing keynote address. And I also enjoyed hearing Jay Shree Uall, the CEO of Arista, speak about the artificial intelligence and machine learnings demand on the network and concluding that artificial intelligence doesn't happen without fiber. You know, I'll be moderating a panel later today on the state of fiber. You know, back in uh, Washington, Gigi Sohm withdrew her name from consideration for the fifth FCC commissioner seat. You know, with a narrow Senate um, Democratic majority, Senator Manchin of West Virginia articulated that he would not be supporting a confirmation and that would have made it near impossible for her to be confirmed. So no word on how soon or who will be nominated in her place. On Thursday, we expect to see President Biden unveil his fiscal year 2024 budget. This document includes the request for funding for of key agencies and programs that address broadband, FCC, uh, RUS, and NTIA would also address tax issues and could request funding for programs like the Affordability Connectivity Program. Uh, Congress will need to approve the, the budget. You know, next Wednesday will be our third episode of our monthly webinar series, Where's the Funding? And so if you missed our last episode with NTIB Director Evan Feynman, I highly recommend that you go to the FBI website under events and watch the replay. Next week's episode is Intro to the Capital Stack with David Harton, the president of ITC Holdings Company. This will be next Wednesday, March 15th um, at 11 a.m. Eastern. So you're not going to want to miss that. Speaking of um, not missing events, please register today for our next regional Fiber Connect workshop and train to trainer class in Oklahoma City on April 6th. Our last regional Fiber Connect workshop was sold out and we had to turn away nearly 50 people, so please do not wait to register. We want to make sure everybody can get in. That brings us to today's Fire for Breakfast session with Jamie Linderman with, with uh, industry research firm Omnia, who's going to share with us her latest research in a session titled Not Your Grandpa's Cable Company and how today many MSOs are moving forward with fiber. You know, last week on Fire for Breakfast, we've heard from Michael Morey, the president and CEO of Bluebird Network, who discussed how best practices deliver top net promoter scores for Bluebird Network. It's great to see that fire providers are helping to significantly improve the perception of the broadband industry with subscribers. Today's Fire for Breakfast session was with Jamie Linderman with research firm Omnia to share her latest research in a session titled, Not Your Grandpa's Cable Company, how today uh, MSOs are moving forward with fiber. Jamie is a principal analyst and research manager in Omnia covering the broadband access intelligence service. Jamie's research area includes fiber, copper, cable, fixed wireless access technologies. Her reports include quarterly market share trackers, forecasts, next-gen technologies, analysis, 
and business strategy, along with specializing in con consultation projects. Jamie has worked as a telecom analyst for over seven years. So welcome, Jamie. And for our audience, please type in your questions as you go, and we'll work them into Q&A at the end. With that, I'd like to turn things over to Jamie. Thanks so much, Gary, and thanks for having me on today. Um, so today, uh, I'd like to talk about um, how MSOs are are no longer going to be cable-based. It, it's, it's something that's been happening for a long time. A lot of cable operators would tell you they already have more fiber in their network than, than cable. Um, but, you know, to start, it would just be, uh, I'd like to just go over sort of some of this transformation. Um, so how can we tell um, where the cable operators are going? So late 90s was really the introduction of cable broadband with the introduction of DOCSIS 1.0, uh, which allowed IP data transmission over coax. Uh, then we get into early 2000s, we, we see DOCSIS 2.0 and DOCSIS 3.0 introduced, uh, which increased both the downstream and upstream speeds available. Um, we get into 2013. Um, this is the introduction of DOCSIS 3.1. Uh, this did a lot to expand capacity on the HFC network uh, with, with the introduction of OFDMA and then the concept of a distributed access architecture, which is moving the intelligence from the head end office or hub out into the field um, with, by using fiber. Additionally, in 2017 is really where we saw the commercial launch of point-to-point -point active Ethernet services. Um, these have been going on for several several years, but to actually see our in our market share, the commercial deployments really started about 2017. And then we get to 2019. This is the introduction of DOCSIS 4.0, which is you know the headlines of of what. Um, of what the next step is for cable operators from an HFC standpoint. Um, it introduced full duplex um, and extended spectrum, as well as the idea of node plus zero, which is essentially pulling fiber all the way to the node and then using no uh, amplifiers. Uh, it's just finished fiber to the distribution point, essentially. And then we get into to around, I'd say approximately 2020, because it really depends on the operator, but we started to see commercial pawn rollouts. Um, this was really, uh, we've seen operators go with 2.5 gig GPON, um, 1 gig, 10 gig EPON, uh, as well as 10 gig GPON. Um, and we also saw the, the rollout of DAA begin with some of the larger tier one operators, as well as operators in Europe. Uh, we really don't see mass deployments of DOCSIS 4.0 until 2024, but essentially around the same time frame, we see 25 gig commercializing, as, and then in 2026, we see 50 gig commercializing, um, and that is for both GPON and EPON. There are solutions for both, um, and, and many, many vendors offer, offer the ability to do both GPON or EPON um, with um, over over the same equipment. Um, and then we look forward to the next decade, 2030. Um, there's a lot of questions around whether DOCSIS is gonna go another generation or what's beyond 25 gig, 50 gig? Is it 100 gig? Is it 200 gig? Um, so there, there's a lot of questions still being asked, but we definitely know that 25 and 50 gig PON has a lot of runway. 
So how can we tell where a cable operator is going? Um, so today I wanted to talk about a survey that we did um, fresh off fresh off the press. We got the final numbers last night. Um, so we surveyed based on cable plans and fiber access network plans. Um, and I'd like to share some of those results with you. So we, we surveyed around 60 cable operators or MSOs across five regions. 91% um, of the respondents were decision makers, meaning they have direct influence on their network deployment strategy. And again, this, this survey was conducted in late February, early March. And so a majority of the respondents were from North America, around 64%. Um, and then we had a split between four other regions. Um, but really, um, most of the respondents were from North America. So for the purposes of today, um, it, it's a good sample size for, for talking about um, this region. So taking a look at survey respondents by organizational revenue, uh, we had a pretty decent mixture across the board of tier one, tier two, tier three or four MSOs. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a pretty good sampling um, size and it gives us some in-depth information um, rather than just apply it to one, one type of tier. So taking a look at some of the, the data, um, so 43% of MSOs have already deployed PON, um, in PON technology in the network. Um, this, we saw this, uh, the, the tiers that had already deployed really was between the largest and the smallest organizations that have already deployed PON. Um, we really saw that the in-between, um, the middle-sized organizations were the ones that tended to say within 12 months or 24 months or longer. We did find that smaller organizations tended to deploy more EPON and remain committed to further generations of EPON, uh, but there is a pretty good split across the board when talking about GPON versus EPON. So of those responded, uh, 76 percent of respondents, of, of those that deployed PON, 76 percent of those respondents said their organization had also deployed FTTH services. Um, we, we decided to use three years because obviously it allows us to, to see a sample from, from the start of the pandemic to now uh, to get an understanding of where this evolution has happened. Um, and we also see that um, the ones that have deployed uh, FTTH, uh, these are for residential services, but there's also the point, uh, like to point out that they may be using PON for business services and additional applications like Smart City. Let's talk about drivers towards using PON in, in the access network by MSOs. So competition is really just one factor driving. 56% of respondents uh, stated that this was one of the top contributing factors. Uh, secondly, 46% of respondents said new business services was a main driver for PON. 39% talked about enhanced residential services to current footprint, and this can include uh, gaming low latency services, um, as well as 35% talked about lower op OPEX, really more fiber equals equals lower lower operational spend. And as well as greenfield scenarios, uh, which is the premise of laying, laying fiber before there's infrastructure or housing built. But there are obstacles that remain. For many, 
for many MSOs, they've got decades worth of investment already in the ground and new levels of CapEx for fiber to the prem rollouts is too, too difficult to justify um, in lieu of further cable plant upgrades. Additionally, 41% of respondents said time to market. Uh, cable is really in a different position than new fiber builds is because they already have a subscriber base that they need to nurture in order to prevent churn. And this is really different than, say, a builder who's rolling out fiber for the first time and just, just building their subscriber base. Additionally, 39% of respondents said one of the top obstacles was return on investment horizon not ideal. Again, we have to think about the existing assets and opportunity for a growth in a specific time frame, in order for um, to in order to meet uh, shareholder requirements or investor investor return requirements. Another point: 37% said migrating existing customers to Pawn was was a major point. Um, it, it's a lot of it's a lot of truck rolls. It's a lot of groundwork, um, and, and it's really that last mile that I think is preventing a lot of cable operators from pulling fiber all the way. In addition, multi-vendor interoperability. 33% um, of respondents said this was a, a main obstacle. Um, so there are some operate cable MSOs that we are seeing ripping and replacing HFC with fiber. But the majority are transitioning where the best market opportunity is. Um, to them, it's important to have partners that can help them through the transformation process, whether they use one or two vendors or several. So here I wanted to take a look at some of the macro impacts in survey, survey results. So looking at COVID-19 pandemic, um, I thought this was interesting because a majority said, 38% said, COVID did not have an influence on their PON deployment timelines. Um, but however, 32% said it accelerated or accelerated significantly, and 21% said it decelerated or decelerated significantly. So it's sort of spread out across the board there. Competition was by far the biggest driver uh, for accelerating or significantly accelerating PON deployment timelines. Um, however, 32% said no influence. Uh, supply chain, you know, for for this was about half and half, um, acceleration and deceleration. Um, I think that really depends on the MSO and their access to, to, to supplies as well as all the parts that they need. And then additionally, vendor solutions. Um, they mostly had a significant impact on driving those plans forward, 46%. Um, new types of vendor solutions are definitely having an effect on their timelines and making it, if they're making it easier to transition to fiber. So some of the top three influences on vendor selection. I would I would argue that we would get similar results if we were if we were pulling fiber only um, operators. Um, however, so really the top one was pricing competitiveness. Um, secondly, was multi-vendor interoperability, which we mentioned was one of the largest obstacles as well. Um, and then end-to-end -end solutions. You know, this really changed um, whether you're a larger tier MSO or a smaller tier MSO, um, but a larger amount of the smaller smaller MSOs wanted an end-to-end -end solution. And this, this would includes all the way from the head end um, or central office to the home and within the home as well. 
And then this here was a poll question we had on uh, when will your organization sunset its HFC DOCSIS broadband services? 3% had said they've already sunset and 77% total said they will sunset HFC broadband services within the next 10 years. Now, the larger the larger the operator, the more likely they were to say no plan to sunset their HFC DOCSIS, um, DOCSIS plans. And so I think those are the ones that we're going to see move forward with DOCSIS 4.0 in some, in some, in some size. So what does this mean for market and vendor growth? So this is our cable, um, apologies, this is our cable broadband access equipment forecast. Um, this covers revenue for the global cable broadband access equipment market. Equipment covered in this forecast is CMTSC cap data ports, um, and which are really the equipment that's in the head end or the central office, um, as well as the movement towards virtual CMTS or cloud-based uh, cloud CMTS, as well as some DAA equipment, including remote FI, remote MACFI devices, as well as digital nodes. While this market show forecast shows that there will be a growth in consumption of cable access equipment over the decade, it starts to wane into the next decade as cable operators invest more fiber to the premise. For this forecast, we see that it will continue to grow at a CAGR of 2.1% through 2028. However, on the other hand, we're going to see in just the next couple years, North America become number one in share for pawn equipment consumption. Uh, this is exceeding China and every other region in our forecast. This shows that fiber penetration is ticking away in the US and Canada. And by 2028, we will far exceed every other region. Um, we expect an overall CAGR globally of 11.5% through 2028. In North America alone, we expect a CAGR of 25.6%. So there's definitely a lot, um, a lot of runway and a lot of action that we're going to see over the next few years. Um, but one thing I would like to just pose here is that there are 80 million homes on HSC-based connection at this time. Uh, the majority is, which is the majority of subscribers are currently on a cable modem. So this is good news for vendors that offer pass for cable operator MSOs because it's going to take many years to migrate those 80 million subscribers. But as we saw with some of the macro factors, timelines for MSOs are accelerating based on supply chains, vendor solutions, and of course, competition factors. And, and with that, if you'd like any more information on our survey, um, please feel free to reach out. Um, this is just a sampling of it. Um, and um, Gary, I, I, I've reached, I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to present some data. Um, and, and I thank the audience for, for your time. Well, we got a bunch of questions here, Jamie. So this is really interesting, especially seeing, um, first of all, the one, I guess, the headline is that cable, the cable industry is going to sunset um, cable network by in the next 10 years. That's basically the takeaway. Is that right? I, a majority, a big portion of cable operators will. I wouldn't say it's completely sunsetting, um, but I would say the majority of new builds will will stop. Well, I think there's probably still a few T1s out in the network and, you know, some things yeah. never die. Um, yeah, but, exactly. 
but yeah, so I mean, what it looked like from your chart is the tipping point is 2025 is when you start to see a com the declining market after that, right? So in Correct. the next basically two years is yes, then we're going to be heading downhill on, you know, as people move more aggressively to pond. Yeah, really the, the takeaway from the forecast is that cable operators are responding now um, to the forthcoming fiber competition. Um, so they need to be prepared now um, and they're working towards that in order to be as competitive as they can. And in, in, in some regards that involves fiber to the home. So we've had other analysts, cable analysts on that said basically what they're seeing is um, cable operators will deploy fiber in all greenfield, they'll deploy fiber in competitive areas, and then in areas where there's no competition, they will continue to roll out their um, duct tape of doxes and keep that kind of resuscitating that network. Is that your understanding? I would say that's a that's that's a pretty good broad assumption. Um, I would also state there are some extremely dense areas uh, that are just too difficult to roll out DOCSIS 4.0 or to roll out fiber to the home. Um, and the, these are special special use cases where, you know, take a place like Boston, for example, which is is very, it's old, it's dense, it's, um, it's hard to run fiber in some regards. Uh, places like that will continue um, to be upgraded on HFC to DOCSIS 4.0. But the question is, is how long will DOCSIS 4.0 be feasible enough um, before fiber to the home should be run? I mean, and that could be, 10, 15 years are the ones that uh, have no plans to sunset, they could continue to run run those um, that generation of, of DOCSIS. So when we saw the administration come out with their planning for the infrastructure funding and they want to do 100 by 100 and the cable industry was up in arms and pushed down to upstream to 20 um, meg as the, the standard for um, you know 100 by 20. So if you look at the DOCSIS standards, they should be able to do that. But my understanding is is that the upstream's not being deployed. That it's too expensive to upgrade to, you know, to be able to get the higher bandwidths. What do you think? You know, we see numbers across the board of of costs costs to roll out fiber to the prem, costs to pass homes. Um, I think we're still a bit in a wait and see on the symmetrical side. There is there is an organizational culture around cable that you know the average consumer doesn't require a certain amount of upstream so unless there's a certain area or a certain target demographic or market that requires symmetrical um, they're they're going to keep it asymmetrical where they can I, so i don't know if you can answer this but what are the economic advantages of deploying pawn from a cable remote node versus direct from the, the cable hub um, is it you know is it the point of pawn to have a passive um, passive network? I guess that's the question. So is uh -huh. I would say what what the ability to have, you know, I assume they're talking about remote OLTs, um, is the ability to roll out um, to more rural places, but be able to offer higher speeds and larger capacity if they're rolling that OLT um, out into a cabinet, um, having to run it um, from the central office all the way. Um, it's it's going to cause too much degradation, um, and I think it, it it opens opportunities to use those remote LTs to to places that there isn't necessarily the opportunity or the business case to roll out a full hub central office um, 
and, and it allows it allows for further market grab um, in order without spending the money on a central office. Jamie, do you have a feel for how much DOCSIS 3.0 versus 3.1 is in the network? And I guess we, we're not really seeing 4.0 until um, next year, right? Correct. Um, in our survey, respondents, 50% uh, said they had rolled out DOCSIS 3.1. It was actually probably closer to 46% had rolled out DOCSIS 3.1. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about DOCSIS 3.1 still having a lot of runway. I mean, the spectrum increases up to 1.8 gigahertz. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to, to continue to run DOCSIS 3.1 or roll it out. Um, we've seen a lot of DOCSIS 3.1 rolled out by, by larger tier operators, um, but there are, there are plenty of DOCSIS 3.0 rollouts that, that still exist um, that have not yet upgraded to DOCSIS 3.1. So why would anybody do Node Plus Zero? I mean, if you're going to do Node Plus Zero, why wouldn't you just go ahead and do Pond? You know, I think the driver behind that is you're pulling fiber to the closest distribution point, but you're mitigating the cost of rolling fiber into the home. Um, that, I would argue, is probably the biggest obstacle um, that they're able to overcome with Node Plus Zero. And one of the questions came in is, what are your thoughts on what is the normal speed to the home standard in the next two years? The next two years. Well, I don't have a crystal ball, uh, but we know that one gig is the norm these days. And and whether, you know, you can have the conversation on whether uh, a subscriber needs one gig, uh, but really it comes down to marketing. If they think they want one gig and they can pay for one gig, uh, they want the it shows that the operator is high quality, has invested in their network, and they're more likely to have less churn as well. Um, I think in the next two years, I mean, we've already started to see five gig offerings and 10 gig offerings um, from fiber operators in the US. I think we're gonna continue to climb uh, for MSO offerings, especially as they roll out new fiber services, they're gonna wanna continue to compete. Um, whether they'll uh, roll out symmetrical services on a wide, widespread scale is to be determined. So one of the things you said drivers uh, that wasn't in your survey is, you know, I see a lot of um, cable companies doing very well in a lot of the um, grant programs. So like Charter won, a, you know, a lot of money in RDOF and we've seen at the state, um, you know, broadband grants that a lot of cable operators are winning deploying fiber is is you know winning um, government subsidies uh, a big driver for cable operators? I think it's a big driver for anybody, um, but definitely cable operators to continue to connect those places where the the last mile business case has been too difficult. Um, I think that. Um, I think that we'll continue to see uh, wins with cable operators, and and I think they're trying to remain competitive as they can, because there's a lot of forthcoming fiber, as you know, there's a lot of forthcoming fiber operators out there that don't that consist of rural co-ops, um, electric utilities. I mean, there's a lot of competition coming their way, and so I think they're going to use anything they can to their advantage to continue to build out. Well, you know, we saw it with telcos. Um, a half decade ago where they all changed from a telco to becoming a broadband ISP. At what point do the cable industry 
no longer use the cable term. I mean, I would think they would have already started to just distance themselves from that you know, image. I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. What would we call, what would we call a cable operator who's got both fiber assets, fiber pond assets as well as cable assets? Because I've heard many say, well, we have more fiber at our plant than we do HFC. So we're sort of technically not a cable operator anymore. And MS, you know, I think the term MSO will continue um but i think um i think it will be within the next 10 years i mean it, as they sunset services we're going to have to figure out the the other thing is talking about content uh video content there's a lot of operators that you know i've heard uh that are no longer trying to keep churn down with video uh, with video content. Um, they said that the content's too high and, and there's really no profit there for them. Uh, so I think the real question is, is, is it gonna be similar to telcos where they don't offer phone service anymore? I mean, they do over voice over IP, but your traditional landline services are no longer existent for the most part. Is that gonna be the same with cable because everything's just streaming over the top now? Well, I guess um, some people like the legacy, you know, when SVC acquired Bell South and renamed themselves American Telephone and Telegraph, you know, it seems uh, seems crazy. Right. But, um, all right. Well, listen, Jamie, this is awesome stuff. I really appreciate you sharing your latest research. Um, so thank you so much. I really appreciate everything you do for our industry. And I want to thank the audience for joining us today. And I hope we can get back together next Wednesday. We're going to be discussing the Treasury Department multi-billion dollar investment in broadband with Joey Winder, the director of the Capital Projects Fund, the $10 billion of broadband fund at the U.S. Department of Treasury. And he's going to tell us how Treasury's work on as part of the Biden administration's efforts to achieve the goal of deploying high-speed internet to those without access and lowering the cost for those who cannot afford it. So you're not going to want to miss that. We'll see you guys again next Wednesday. And thanks, Jamie. Stay warm there in Montana.